This is Ozarks at Large on KUAF 91.3. I'm Kyle Kellums. It is Monday, February 20th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. Today we celebrate Daisy Gatson Bates Day. An Arkansan who is best known for her involvement in integrating Central High School in Little Rock in 1957. In 2019, the Arkansas General Assembly passed a law to place a statue of Daisy Bates in the National Sanctuary Hall Collection at the U.S. Capitol. First up on our show today, last March, governors from Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana announced the formation of the Halo Hydrogen Hub. The bipartisan three-state team, one of nearly 80 hydrogen hub teams formed across the country, is competing for funding from the U.S. Department of Energy's Regional Clean Hydrogen Hubs program. The program mission is to create hydrogen supply chains to decarbonize the nation's industrial, transportation, and energy sectors. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, the Halo Hydrogen Hub was selected with 32 other contenders late last year to submit a full application by April 7th. This Hydrogen Hubs competition emerged in part from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, signed into law by President Joe Biden in late 2021. The U.S. Energy Department plans to award up to $8 billion to a select group of regional clean hydrogen hubs to spur hydrogen production networks across the U.S., funding matched by cooperating industry. Most hydrogen produced today is extracted from natural gas with high-temperature steam and is used to refine petroleum, treat metals, produce fertilizer, and process foods. Clean hydrogen produced from water through electrolysis powered by solar and wind is needed to power zero-emission vehicles, industry, and electrical generation. Regional hydrogen hubs across the nation will anchor new clean hydrogen production. You know, this is a comprehensive effort. It's something that we we believe in. Jason Lonclo is director of Louisiana State Energy Office in the Department of Natural Resources. Louisiana is leading the tri-state HALO hydrogen hub project. HALO is an acronym for Hydrogen Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma. He says Louisiana has long had an infrastructure in place to transport hydrogen, historically made from superheated methane gas. As we started to put the pieces together, you know, Louisiana knew it had a strong play. We have some, we've been producing hydrogen for over 50 years in Louisiana. We have a company that has a pipeline that traverses our state. Longclose says Louisiana's conventional oil fields located on coastal plains and offshore are now at great risk due to rising seas. And the thing that we have um, looking toward the future that we definitely have some significant challenges on is not only a vanishing coast, but also trying to drastically renew or drastically increase our renewable profile, you know, getting fuels and getting other things to Louisiana, like wind power, offshore wind power, or potentially using hydrogen as a feedstock to help our industries to decarbonize. Decarbonization refers to the reduction or elimination of carbon dioxide emissions, CO2, a climate change accelerant. The HALO Hydrogen Hub aims to build hydrogen assets from renewable wind and solar to power electrolyzers, converting water into hydrogen, distributed in pipelines, stored in tanks, and underground caverns. Carbon-free hydrogen can also be produced using nuclear power, you know, our nuclear facilities can can get involved. We have two facilities in Louisiana, another two in Arkansas. We have other facilities potentially that can partner and produce hydrogen that will help put it more into the marketplace. More than 50% of Oklahoma's power along close says is produced by renewable resources, mostly wind energy, which can fuel clean hydrogen production. Only 10% of energy in Arkansas is renewable, with coal the lead source. Oklahoma is the nation's fifth largest producer of marketed natural gas, sixth for crude oil. But more than 41% of Oklahoma's electricity net generation is from wind, a key source for clean hydrogen production. Louisiana is trying to do those things, but we're a couple of years out before we can really start to amp up our renewable profile. So those two states can come in and make an immediate impact. They have tools, they have resources, they have right-of-ways that we can couple ours with. Lonclose says the Halo Hydrogen Hub has three tiers. One is the political tier, which is obviously our three governors and our, and our political secretaries working together 
under Louisiana's leadership to lead this project. And then the other is our research development in universities where they are directly looking at usages for hydrogen, trying to incorporate higher blending ratios in our refineries and in our chemical and manufacturing facilities, and really starting to look for economic advantages in terms of how, how do we make this region a manufacturing epicenter? How do we, how do we attract startup companies? And then the, the third piece to it is obviously our communities and our NGOs and others and, and these companies who are going to be directly supporting them by really putting in good projects that we think are going to be anchors for long-term clean energy development. We queried the Oklahoma Department of Energy for this report, and administrator for the Oklahoma Secretary of Energy declined to talk until selection is finalized. The Arkansas Department of Energy did respond via email, no official attribution. Essentially, Arkansas plans to generate green hydrogen from existing and new solar and wind-generating facilities, low-carbon hydrogen from natural gas through steam methane reforming. In this process, methane reacts with high-temperature steam to produce carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and hydrogen. Arkansas also plans to produce low-carbon hydrogen blended with natural gas for electric power production. The Tri-State Halo Hub will sequester carbon from hydrogen production by capturing CO2 emissions and injecting it underground for permanent storage. That should be a temporary solution, critics claim, given compressed and highly toxic CO2 can rupture pipelines, breach underground storage caverns, contaminate drinking water, and stimulate seismic activity. Brian Ross is vice president of Renewable Energy at Great Plains Institute, headquartered in Minneapolis, which facilitates a multi-state hydrogen economy collaborative. He says hydrogen has long been a niche fuel. About 60% of the hydrogen market is in, is in actually refining of fossil fuels, uh, and the other, about 30%, uh, is in production of ammonia, primarily for fertilizer. And there is, ironically, an awful lot of, uh, of greenhouse gas emissions associated with hydrogen production because it's almost all using, uh, you know, uh, fossil fuels. Which the U.S. Department of Energy and the Biden administration seek to mitigate. The, the potentials of hydrogen has always been that it can displace fossil fuels, but we have to make sure that it does so in a way that's cost-effective uh, as well as providing as, as being a relatively sim- seamless transition in terms of kind of the, the productivity and the economic benefit that we would get uh, from hydrogen as a fuel versus other kinds of um, uh, other kinds of uh, feedstocks. Ross says the promise of clean hydrogen has long been hindered by conventional markets. There's a big market for low carbon hydrogen if we can make it cost effective and competitive with the existing processes in hydrogen production which is where the Department of Energy hydrogen hubs come into play. Yeah, the hydrogen hub process is, is, is one of those, you know, once in a lifetime market transformative kind of events uh, that, that has, has come out of policy, um, you know, in the infrastructure bill that was passed, what, about a year and a half ago now, I think. You know, originally it was going to fund four hubs. Now they're talking about possibly funding more hubs. And, uh, and, and it is indeed transformative because it's one of the big barriers to developing a new market, for instance, a new production facility is kind of getting over the initial of developing both the physical infrastructure, but also the kind of organizational and market infrastructure for the new system. So we're we're creating a new market here is what we're doing uh, with the hydrogen hub. And that's what it was designed to do. And they're making, and you need the kind of investment of that size in order to make it happen. One of the important things is people say $8 billion, that's, that's, that's a mind-boggling amount of money. But the, the whole point of that kind of investment is that it's leveraging far more money um, in the private sector. The Halo Hub is partnered with oil companies, electric utilities, and industry willing and able to invest in clean hydrogen. For example, for fuel cell electric vehicles powered by hydrogen that produce zero tailpipe emissions except water vapor and warm air. For light-duty passenger vehicles, we can be pretty confident now that electrification is the way we're going to go, how we're going to decarbonize that sector. However, heavy-duty 
uh, transportation uh, and medium duty heavy you know, transportation, it's not clear that electrification is the pathway that we're going to select. And things like hydrogen kind of come into play in those, as well as a lot of industrial processes. The Halo Hydrogen Hub will link hydrogen producers with supporting infrastructures across Louisiana, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, two of those states with ample natural gas production, all with existing natural gas pipeline networks, rail and river transport, heavy industry that already relies on hydrogen as a feedstock, as well as established ports and trucking centers that could convert to hydrogen fuel. In April, the U.S. Department of Energy will select six to 10 regional hydrogen hubs to receive between 400 million and 1.25 billion each by late summer or early fall. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Still to come this hour, horses, gambling, and keeping up with the times at Oakland Park. Another change at the track will be the wagering system. It's all computerized, designed to cut down on long lines and quickly compute winnings. Essentially, every machine within the plant can sell tickets of any denomination from $2 to $250, and then turn around and cash any of those tickets. Betters will go through three simple steps at the window. First, state the amount of wager. Second, state the type of wager, to win, place, or show. And thirdly, state the number of the horse. From the time the racetrack ran out of money to the ways the racetrack has changed. Told through archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. That's in just a few minutes on today's show. You can discover something for everyone in the family this winter at the Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville. Programming for kids of all ages, teens, adults, and professional development for educators is available. And on April 21st, the Amazium hosts its annual Ungala fundraiser. Information and registration at amazium.org. This is a Monday edition of Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Tomorrow, which is a Tuesday, that's how it usually works, Mm -hmm. we're going to have another live undisciplined uh, event in Fayetteville. That's right. Yes, we're going to be on the University of Arkansas's campus in Memorial Hall. We're going to be talking about the history of food insecurity in Northwest Arkansas. We've got a really great and vast panel of people to talk about the history of it, where we're at with it now, and what sort of changes we're hoping to make. Um, It's going to be a really insightful conversation. That is tomorrow night from 6 to 7.30 on the University of Arkansas campus. And if you can't make it, that will be the undisciplined episode in a week and a couple of days, correct? Yes, that's right. All right. And where, again, is it taking place for po- folks who do want to be part of the live event? Yes, if you want to come to the live event, that'll be in Memorial Hall in the African and African American Studies Programs Room in Memorial Hall on the University of Arkansas campus from 6 to 730. Every day at KUAF, we ask questions. That's a good question. I think right now. Uh, yeah, that's that's a really good question. I, oh, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, I, so that's a good question, and I wish I had more data for you. But. Yeah, it's a good, really good question, like how it's different. Yes, yeah. that is a terrific question. Asking the questions that matter to get you the answers you need. You can help keep public radio curious when you donate. Give online at supportkuaf.com. And thanks. Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders says she supports a new bill which would allow certain convicted drug dealers to face charges equivalent to murder. Governor Sanders made the announcement Friday alongside Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin and the bill's Republican co-sponsors, Senator Ben Gilmore and Representative Jimmy Gazaway. The governor says it's necessary due to a nationwide spike in drug overdoses brought on largely by the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Arkansas will charge drug dealers with murder if they deliver drugs that cause an overdose. For the most heinous drug dealers, those who traffic fentanyl to children, we will charge them with life in prison. And for anyone caught trafficking fentanyl, the deadliest drug on our streets today, Arkansas will put you in jail for 25 to 60 years and impose a mandatory million dollar fine. The bill creates a new death-by-delivery charge with varying degrees of severity. Governor Sanders also introduced the state's new drug czar, Tom Fisher, who will coordinate Arkansas's entire illicit drug response. Fisher, a longtime official 
with the Department of Justice and the Drug Enforcement Administration, says his experience at all levels of law enforcement will serve him well in his new role. I had the opportunity to work with state and local officers, investigators, and public health officials to find ways to make communities safer. It's, it's been my pleasure and it's been my honor. Um, Governor, as your drug director, uh, I, I can only describe the manner in which we're about to go in as, as urgent. Fisher says his biggest priority as drug director will be to cut down on overdose deaths. There were 628 such deaths in Arkansas in 2021. A Senate panel today is expected to discuss a bill aiming to amend an Arkansas law regarding how public libraries handle materials considered as obscene. The Arkansas Democrat Gazette reports Republican Jonesboro Senator Dan Sullivan amended Senate Bill 81 last week after receiving feedback from the Arkansas Library Association and Arkansas School Boards Association. The new amendment will allow parents or legal guardians of patrons under 18 access to their confidential library records. Some opponents fear it could lead to privacy violations or harm the welfare of minors who borrow books on sensitive topics, such as sexual abuse. Garland County Library Director Adam Webb says there is no need for additional legislation, as existing laws already cover the regulation of libraries. In the Anthony and Susan Hoy News studio with me on this Monday is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Welcome back, Randy. Thank you, Kyle. That opening cut, there's something called the milepost effect that I think roughly means if you smell something or hear something, it instantly takes you somewhere. Yes. Now, I don't go to Oaklawn more than once a year, and I don't go every year, but that instantly put me at Oh, Oaklawn. you know it. Yes. You, you, you... I mean, I can still, you know. I know the feeling when I first walk in those it gates. Smells. Yes, and it's, I. It's great. And it's, I don't put down more than a two dollar bet almost ever. Well, when I go, I'm not going to gamble. Right. I'm going for an event to right. have a great time. Right. And and I always do. Yes. So we're talking about Oaklawn today. And they're off. And they're off. Yes. Oaklawn has been around for a while. Since 1905. Though not continuously operating. Right. There were some times yeah. that, uh, you know, during Prohibition Wars, things like right. that, that it would close temporarily. But it's been a mainstay right. in Hot Springs. And when it first opened, it wasn't the only one. Mm. There were several others around the state and even a couple in the Hot Springs area. But the Sella brothers. Yeah. Uh, Charles and Lewis opened it, and the first thing they did, get this, is they hired a guy named Zachary Taylor Davis, who was a well-known architect in Chicago, mm -hmm. and he came and designed that grandstand okay. that you still see, glassed in and heated, which had never been done before in the country. So it was a big deal. And... To get an idea of how big this architect was, 10 years later, he designed Wrigley Field. Oh, my. Same guy. Huh. How about that? I did not know that. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the Sella family still owns the track. So it's been in the family for generations. Right. Um, for a long time, the, the president and owner was Charles Sella. Um, his son, Louis, now is president. Um, but Charles in the, I think he took over in 68 and, um, after the death of his father and, um, well, I found an interview with him, uh, in the KTV archives. This dates back to 1974. He was interviewed by then KTV sports director, Bud Campbell, mm. and he's talking about, improvements and expansions. This will increase the capacity here by what? Well, if you recall last Derby Day, we set an attendance record of uh, 28,000. Uh, the capacity will be increased by a third. So we feel that we can handle adequately uh, 35,000 people. So that was 49 years ago. Well, and he you know, was talking about this record right. attendance of 28,000 and they're hoping to get 35,000. Well, just to 
kind of put it in perspective, um, they set an attendance record in 1986 of more than 71,000. So it's more than doubled. Right. Oh, yes. Uh, just since the 70s. First, let's talk about the track announcers, and they're off. Yes. Uh, there have been a, a couple of really big ones over the years. The first one, who I don't remember, but was probably the most famous, was uh, a man by the name of Chick Anderson. I've heard the name. Yeah, you've always heard the name. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was not only voice at Oaklawn, but he was also at Churchill Downs, Santa Anita, Arlington Park, and he was also on CBS Sports. So he was a well-known person in the 60s and early 70s. But, um, well, let's hear him make a stretch call here. They're coming for the head of the stretch. Boldor is the leader and master court is in a drive. Tammy Jet between horses. They're in the stretch. That is Tammy Jet taking over the lead with Master Court on the outside in a drive. Those two are coming together. Master Court taking over the lead as they move through the stretch. Still Tammy Jet holding in second. Driving into third is Boldor Analyst. Coming for the wire, it's Master Court. At the finish, it's going to be Master Court, the winner by three and a half. Tammy Jet second. What's great of, about Chick Anderson's voice, it's, it's very kind of low-key. Mm-hmm. And monotone, mm-hmm. which was, I mean, that was him excited right. during the yes. stretch run. Right. Now, the guy I know. Yeah, that, that most of Arkies know. Oh, because he was there forever for more than 30 years, right. uh, Terry Wallace. And he was up. He was, he was up, excited. And, um, well, here's a call that he made um, in 1984. One thing about Terry Wallace, he could work. He, all right, here's, here's a little stat. He never missed a race. He had a record of 20,191 consecutive races he called. Because you think about it, you're, you're calling 9, 10, 11 races every day. Right, for 37 years. And how you keep all those horses straight? You've only got 45 minutes or 50 minutes in between races to get yourself familiar with the horses and their silks. Right, it's quite a job. Yeah, it is. Here's the great voice of Terry Wallace at the stretch. Althea opens her lead to four lengths. On the outside, it is Gate Dancer moving to second. Darn that alarm is third, leaves them double is fourth. But the Philly Althea leads it by five lengths. Gate Dancer is second at the threshold third. With a furlong to go, it's Althea stepping away from this field of Colts in the Arkansas Derby. Althea's going to win it. Althea wins the Arkansas Derby by five lengths. That was 1984 with Terry Wallace. In 84... Just the 80s in general, but especially 1984 was a big year for Oakland. Sports reporter from KTV, Bob Harris, did a report sort of previewing the season. To accommodate the always large crowds at Oakland, track officials thought it would be best to enlarge the seating capacity. This season's newly completed grandstand section will account for a 10% increase in the number of enclosed arena seats. Another change at the track will be the wagering system. It's all computerized designed to cut down on long lines and quickly compute winnings. Essentially, every machine within the plant can sell tickets of any denomination from $2 to 250 and then turn around and cash any of those tickets. Bettors will go through three simple steps at the window. First, state the amount of wager. Second, state the type of wager to win, place, or show. And thirdly, state the number of the horse. There will be a communication problem for both the tellers and the customers. Uh, I feel that better than 50% have never seen this type of system uh, since we have such a great turnover of public coming to the racetrack. And it will be new to them. We will have brochures, uh, literature within the program to explain how to bet. The major change at Oakland this year, the change that's drawing most of the attention, is the purse for the Arkansas Derby. It's been raised from $250 to $500,000. With excellent track conditions and a fine line of thoroughbreds coming in, many experts are predicting records to be set. That, they feel, will make the racing festival of the South worth its while. From Oakland, this is Bob Harris for New Scene 7 Sports. Obviously, by the mid-'80s, it is a mainstay of the hot springs economy and the Arkansas culture. Sure. Sure, but then competition creeps in. Uh, all the adjoining states 
Blue Ribbon Downs in Salisaw opens up. Louisiana Downs right. and Baton Rouge. Um, but then you get gambling. Uh, I'll let a guy who would know um, tell the story. This is uh, General Manager Eric Jackson. The 1980s were, were great, and we thought they would never end. And then a whole bunch of states got racing, and we nearly went out of business, so we came up with something that nobody knew what it was at the time called simulcasting. But uh-huh. we started that here, and now it's the biggest product in American racing. And that worked until Mississippi got casinos, and then Louisiana, Missouri, and Oklahoma. And suddenly we were surrounded by more casinos in adjacent states than any state in the country. And we had to come up with something. We came up with instant racing and formed a subsidiary. Put that on the floor in 2000, and it worked. Uh, we were able to take the revenues from that and uh, put them into purses. And the racing got better, and suddenly it became what I call a, a virtuous upward cycle where racing and gaming work together uh, for the betterment of the sport, and we've never looked back. Horse racing is not as popular now as it was 75 years ago. You know, right. there was a time when it was one of still the sport of kings, right? Yeah, but there most was a, exciting two minutes on earth, right? <laughs> there was a time when it was part of the public consciousness, and let's be honest, it isn't so much now. So you had to come up with ways to engage people differently, right? And boy, have they! Yeah, they. Have. Um, you know, that was the year 2000. The track officials went to the state legislature, wanted to talk to them about upping, um, you know, taking another step towards gambling at the park because gambling was still um, illegal. Right. But this I've always thought was brilliant. And I, I credit Eric Jackson with doing this because it was under his, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was under his management. But they came up with a thing called skill-based gaming. Not gambling. No, no, because you had to uh, have some sort of skill. You mm-hmm. were picking races. Mm-hmm. You were picking horses. But it was electronic. It was like a slot machine. But really, it was a veiled form of gambling. Here's, here's Eric Jackson again. And the legislature voted, well, you can now have other electronic games of skill, but there has to be an element of skill. Okay. So suddenly we could expand our menu beyond just instant racing. And that's, that's the time we said, you know, we've got to start looking like a, a casino. So it was really kind of gambling, wasn't it? Oh, it was. No, it was, it was real gambling. I mean, it was video poker and things like that. But it was it was the next step. I call the the baby steps of gaming. Uh, we started out with instant racing, and then we got uh, electronic games of skill. Then the state got a state lottery, and then uh-huh. ultimately we were allowed to have a full casino. Now we're just talking now about announcers and management, mm-hmm. and um, you know. We aren't even talking about jockeys and trainers and owners right now. I think we could do an entire oh sure we could program on that if you want to. Yeah, we can do that in a few weeks. Yeah, but now let's talk about the handicappers and sports writers. You know, I remember tip sheets. You know, you're walking across the street. Oh yeah, to go in, and there's always people standing on the corner. And I remember like Stable Boy and uh, Silent Sam. A disc jockey in Little Rock, Ray Lincoln, who used to come on the radio every morning, and um, he had a character he would do <laughs> that um, he had a tip sheet. Mm-hmm. Even Gary Weir, who was Bozo the Clown, right? when he retired from the big top, he started handicapping races. He was really good. The sports writers had daily columns during the season, and they would also make picks. So you had all this information that that you could, you know, use for your wagers. Right. But one guy who's now with NBC Sports is Randy Moss, who I've known for years and years. Mm -hmm. Um, But we never met in person that many times. And the reason is he used to be on Live at Five every day during racing season at five o'clock 
we would go live to Oaklawn, and he'd be up in the press box, and he would have his picks and analyze the day of racing. And I was the producer, so I would always talk in his ear. He's now with NBC Sports, and uh, he grew up in Arkansas, in Hot Springs specifically. He's been going to the track since, well, actually he was too young to go to the track. He mm-hmm. would go. But I talked to him the other day, and this is what he had to say about his early history with Oaklawn. Snuck into Oaklawn in various different methods uh, when I was a kid, when the legal age was 16 years old, and I was much younger than that. And, uh, you know, eventually uh, that sort of morphed into a job with the Arkansas Gazette under Orville Henry and then the Arkansas Democrat. And so Oaklawn Park has been a uh, very important part of my life. I guess you could call him a, a handicapping prodigy. Yes. But he started handicapping races, I mean, for real. Professionally. When he was in junior high. Wow. Now, he didn't make much. Um, he started working for a man named Don Grisham, who was with the Sporting News. And he also and had the Sporting a, News, in case you've forgotten, was this weekly newsprint publication. Yes. Yes. Um, National. But but he also had a column in the Arkansas Gazette. And so he hired this ninth grader, Randy Moss, to type up, you know, four computers or anything Mm -hmm. else. And he would type up all of his entries and picks and then take it to give it to the newspaper. And he paid him $20 a week to do that. Mm -hmm. Good money. Let's listen to Randy Moss about what he did. Don wasn't the greatest handicapper in the world. And I would come across races in which I was absolutely convinced in my ninth grade wisdom that he was wrong. And so I dropped off the entries one day and uh, told them that uh, I think you made a mistake here. So I I changed your pick in this particular race. I think that this horse is going to win. The horse won. And that emboldened. Is he okay with that? Well, when the horse won, he was okay with that. I, I I think he found it humorous to begin with. Uh, but when the horse won, it sort of emboldened me a little bit, and I started doing it more and more often, and I had a, a pretty lucky and impressive strike rate. And so uh, at the end of that ninth grade meeting, when we when we Oakland started again, and I was in the tenth grade, Don told me, let's flip this. Why don't you do all the picking? And if I want to change something, since my name is on the column, then I have uh, – then I have the right. Beginning in wow. the 10th grade, I began doing the column myself full time. And but under time, another name. Under another name. But after a few years, he made a name for himself. And, you know, like I said, he did the Live at Five reports. And he started doing those, I guess you'd say, before he was even old enough to drink. So he was not yet 21. He was 19 or 20. Wow. So, yeah, he and I are the same age. Mm-hmm. Here's this kid in the control room at the tv station talking to this kid up in the press box Mm -hmm. he was a great handicapper and of course moved on and moved up and now he's with nbc sports i guess if we're telling just little stories about oakland another good story is the story of smarty jones remember that name oh my goodness there were smarty parties People who were big fans of this horse would gather and have a Smarty Party. I still have some of the Smarty Jones trading cards mm. that they were that they were passing out, and that was in 2004. He took Oaklawn and really the entire nation by storm. Of horse oh, he yeah. did. Um, he was he was all the talk. Oaklawn had offered in celebration of their centennial year, and I think they started it the year before. But they would give, they offered a $5 million bonus to any horse that could win the Rebel Stakes and the Kentucky right. Derby, or the Rebel Stakes and the Arkansas Derby at Oaklawn, and then go and win the Kentucky Derby. Well, let's just hear Smarty Jones in the stretch run of the Arkansas Derby. Smarty Jones leads it by three and a half and is pulling away. They're driving toward the wire. It is Smarty Jones by three. Barrigo trying to make one late move. Pro Prado at the rail. Smarty Jones leading by two. It is Smarty Jones. One step more to Kentucky and one giant step to $5 million. And now I remember that 
during the Kentucky Derby, Belmont, and the Preakness, Oaklawn, as Eric had mentioned, was doing simulcasting. Mm-hmm. They had, you mentioned the Smarty Parties. Mm-hmm. They had huge Smarty Parties at Oaklawn. And you could watch the race. You could bet at their windows, their cages. It was just a lot of fun. It was a big party. My, my brother and I went to one of them. Anyway, this one for the Kentucky Derby, um, Smarty Jones was, wasn't originally the favorite. Now, right. by race time, he was, but he was going off at 4-1, to one, which is really good odds for a favorite. Mm-hmm. So that's a really good pay. And Smarty Jones won. <laughs> and it caused a little bit of a problem <laughs> For Oakland, which I've never heard this story I before, have, yeah. but you have heard it? I had heard about it, yeah, but never from someone who actually knew what it was. Who was sweating bullets right. because of it. Here's Eric Jackson. What was remarkable about the Kentucky Derby is we ran out of money because everybody at Oakland bet on Smarty. And, of course, uh, he won the Kentucky Derby and paid, I don't know, 8 or $9. We didn't have enough money to pay everybody off. Oh, now, no. we're ultimately mingled in with all the other bets in America, but it takes 24 to 48 hours to shift all that money around so that losing money gets shifted so you can pay off winning money. But all the winners were at Oakland. <laughs> so we ran out of money. I don't think that's ever happened at a racetrack before. Everybody was understanding. Come back tomorrow or you know, we'll mail it to you, anything you want us to do, but we're out of money. So there wasn't a run on the cages, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was it was late in the day on a Saturday, you know, we couldn't even run down to the bank. So yeah. one of the oddities in American racing is Smarty was so popular in Arkansas that Oakland ran out of money. Uh so things continued to develop and fairly quickly when you look at the you know, the history, the long history of Oakland. So in two thousand nine voters approved the lottery. Uh, which helped because every other state around us had the lottery. Then in 2018, as you know, gambling was made legal. Right. So Oakland is now in the unique position of having both a racetrack and a casino. So let's hear Eric Jackson one more time. We came up with the term racino. It's, it's not a racetrack and it's not a casino. It's something in between. But we think we have found a way, or at least we know we have so far, we've found a way that racing and gaming can each benefit the other. And right now, on the racing side, of course, we're racing today, our purses are the highest in America. And this is at a track that was nearly out of business in the late 1990s. In fact, a lot of people had given us up for dead. And here we are now with the highest purses in America and, and what we think is some of the very best racing in America. And it's all here in Arkansas and Hot Springs. We'll do something again next week. Yeah. I bet on it. It'll be fun. Ah. <laughs> hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough. So why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Morning Edition, tomorrow morning from 5 until 9 on KUAF. And during Morning Edition at 631 and 831, the Community Spotlight with Pete Hartman places an emphasis on nonprofit work in our region. Morning Edition and Community Spotlight tomorrow and every weekday morning on 91.3 KUAF. On tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, when University of Arkansas Associate Professor Jason Burrow was auditioning to be Associate Music Director for a touring production of Hamilton, he got notes. The notes were crazy specific. They were like, you know, this one eighth note in that thumb has to sound more like this drum. And this eighth note and this pinky and this sixteenth note here is a little bit out of time. It was they were they were crazy detailed. And then I um so I got those notes and worked up the music again and did an hour long Zoom audition with them. 
What happened next on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF and by accessing the free Ozarks at Large podcast through any major podcast distributor or by searching podcasts at KUAF.com. Arkansas PBS is now accepting entries for the statewide Arkansas PBS Kids Writers Contest, open to children in kindergarten through third grades now through April 21st. The effort is designed to promote the advancement of children's literacy skills through hands-on, active learning, winning stories, as well as contest rules. Creative writing resources and entry forms are available at myarpbs.org slash Writers Contest. The Don Tyson School of Innovation presents Alice in Wonderland Thursday through Saturday at the Pat Ellison Performing Arts Center in Springdale. Alice will have her legendary adventures as she encounters the White Rabbit, the Queen of Hearts, and all the other mad characters of Wonderland. This new stage adaptation is based on Lewis Carroll's children's books, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and Through the Looking Glass. Tickets will be available at the door each night. And registration is open for spring and summer camps through the Peel Compton Foundation. Camps will be at the Kohler Mountain Bike Preserve, the Quiver Archery Range, and Osage Park. Spring dates are March 21st through the 25th, and summer camps begin in early June. The Peel Compton Foundation's mission is to connect the community through nature, education, recreation, and preservation. For more, peelcompton.org. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook. With Arkansas. Keep on churning till the butter comes. Arkansas' Henry Glover of Hot Springs started out in music as a trumpeter. His subsequent career was primarily as a producer, where he helmed such American classics as the original versions of Fever and The Twist. Glover produced a stunningly wide musical range. Country music performers Grandpa Jones, the Delmore Brothers, and Moon Mulligan. R&B artists James Brown and Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. Pop stars The Charms and Joey D and the Starlighters, and jazz vocalists Dinah Washington and Sarah Vaughn. However, Henry Glover, born May 21, 1921, is likely most recognizable to the world for his songwriting. There's pop classics, The Peppermint Twist, California Sun, there's R&B Standards, Rambunctious, I'll Drown in My Own Tears, and there's hidden R&B gems, Teardrops on Your Letter, Seven Nights to Rock, and Cherry Wine. It ain't the me, it's the motion. Glover's parents, John Dixon Glover and Pearl Ware Glover, weren't enthusiastic about Henry's interest in the entertainment world, considering it for levy camp people. Writing and producing classic popular American songs as he did is one thing. One can imagine their reaction to Henry producing and writing so many suggestive songs in what was a thriving subgenre of rhythm and blues in the 1940s and 1950s. Glover wrote many in the body tradition and produced even more, mostly for King Records of Cincinnati, Ohio, with whom he was affiliated for years. Heard here is It Ain't the Meat by the Swallows of Baltimore. Opening the program was the ribald Keep On Churnin' by rock and roll forefather Wynoni Harris. Both were released as singles on King Records in 1952 and produced and co-written by Henry Glover. It's oysters, those good old mountain oysters. If it made the family feel any better, Henry Glover wrote many of his songs under a pseudonym, Henry Bernard, including Mountain Oysters by Eddie Lockjaw Davis heard here from 1949. But Glover wasn't fooling anyone back home. Bernard was Henry's middle name. And he had a baby, can't work no more. Although the risque song, of course, has a lengthy history and tradition, one might say this long wave of naughty songs reached an apex with the Annie songs. This began with Work With Me Annie by the Midnighters from early 1954, which is considered one of the songs that shaped rock and roll. Henry Glover wrote one of several Annie answer songs, Annie Had a Baby, heard here. Glover was a frequent producer of Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, and the Annie song sold well, despite, or because of, some of them being initially banned from radio play. Ironically for Glover, several of the answer songs from the female perspective of Annie were aimed at a fellow named Henry, including Roll With Me Henry, Dance With Me Henry, Annie Met Henry, and Henry's Got Flat Feet, Can't Dance No More. George! Silent George! Don't you know it's half past four? I said George! Produced and co-written by Henry Glover, Silent George from 1950 is heard here. It's by Lucky Millinder and his orchestra with vocals by Myra Johnson. When he was starting out, Glover had been a member of Millinder's band. One of the best-remembered featured players in Lucky Millinder's band was Cotton Plant Arkansas native Rosetta Tharp. But Eddie Lockjaw Davis, Wynoni Harris, and Bull Moose Jackson, all featured in this episode of Arkansas, were also all in Millinder's bands over the years. I believe George is blowing his top. Come get George! 
country, blues, pop, R&B, jazz, or rock and roll, Henry Glover did it all. In fact, Glover said that growing up in Hot Springs probably had a lot to do with establishing a certain thing in his life, calling it a very unusual town. According to Country Music Hall of Fame historian John Rumble, Glover, quote, furthered a process of musical synthesis that gave birth to rock and roll, including and going well beyond his risque songs, Glover's pioneering cross-pollination work in the 1940s and 1950s helped bend the genres and helped break the American musical color lines. Arkansas Henry Glover died April 7, 1991. His contributions to the American songbook are incomparable. Here in its entirety is I Want a Bow-Legged Woman, co-written and produced by Henry Glover of Hot Springs. This song by Bull Moose Jackson and his Buffalo Bearcats hit the top five in 1947. Start because the big fat legs are so far apart. I want a bow-legged woman right now. I want to find me a gal somehow. She's got to be built like an old bass fiddle. Big bow legs with plenty room in the middle. Gotta be on my way to find a bow-legged woman today. He wants a bow-legged woman. Because the big fat legs are so far apart. He wants a bow-legged woman. Divine. A bow-legged woman, that's fine. She don't have to be no glamour gal, but she's gotta have hooves like an old beer bear. Gotta be on my way to find a bow-legged woman today. Jackson, a top five song from 1947, produced and co-written by Henry Glover of Hot Springs. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merks. Arkansas since 1998. The Arkansas Razorback men's basketball team is now 18-9 and after blowing out Florida this weekend. Arkansas will host Georgia on Tuesday night. The Razorback women are 19-10 and after losing at Georgia yesterday. Arkansas will be at Mississippi State Thursday night before wrapping up their regular season in Bud Walton Sunday afternoon against Texas A&M. The regular seasons are quickly coming to a close for the University of Arkansas-Fort Smith basketball teams. Both Lions squads will host Oklahoma Christian University Thursday night on the UFA, UAFS campus. That's before the Lone Star Conference tournaments begin next week. Meanwhile, the John Brown University basketball teams are already looking at opening games in their respective conference tournaments this week. The John Brown women will face Wayland Baptist in Plainview, Texas, Thursday night. That's in the quarterfinals of the Sooner Athletic Women's Tournament. The JBU men will be at Langston University Thursday night 
in Lincoln, Oklahoma. That's also in the quarterfinals of the conference tournament. A win for either of the JBU teams would extend the season into Monday night's conference semifinals. There goes our Razorback baseball team is 2-1 and one after the first weekend of play. The Razorbacks, ranked 8th, defeated Texas and number 9 Oklahoma State at the College Baseball Showdown in Arlington, Texas. In between the wins was a loss to number 15 TCU. The home opener is scheduled for tomorrow at 3 at Baum Stadium against Grambling. In fact, the next 18 games on the schedule are in Fayetteville. KUAF's concert series, The Lunch Hour, will be taking place on Saturday, February 25th during the 5th annual Black-Owned Northwest Arkansas Business Expo at the Fayetteville Town Center from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. We will be celebrating Black History Month alongside more than 60 Black-owned businesses in the region while enjoying food from local Black-owned food vendors and music from artist and filmmaker Mike Day. For more information on the event, visit KUAF.com and look for The Lunch Hour. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Clifty. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Most famous person born in Clifty yeah. was Archie Vaughn, Hall of Fame shortstop, who uh, had quite the career with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Okay. That's not the name I was going to guess. Oh, who are you going to say? Uh, I was going to say uh, Cliff from Cheers, no. which is where they actually named the town after, <laughs> nope, right? Nope. Archie okay. Vaughn. Uh, yes. Anyway, Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Additional material provided by the newsroom at KUAR in Little Rock and the newsroom at KASU. In Jonesboro. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. We have started this brand new week of daily editions of Ozarks at Large. We've got a lot more coming to you next week and the week after. This is the time of year when it seems like everything really starts to crank back up, warm weather. I know that you've got a pretty interesting interview that you'll be conducting today. Not quite sure when it'll be be on the air, but soon. That's right. Yeah, I'm going to be talking with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Murdoch, who is a Grammy Award winning professor Mm -hmm. here at the University of Arkansas, talking about a new master's program in black sacred music. Really interested in talking to him about why we, why this is an important degree to have and, and how this really separates itself from other musical degrees. So really excited about that conversation. And that'll be on sometime in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, also coming up soon, speaking of music, uh, Sarah Jane Nelson, who is writing um, a book about Max Hunter, mm-hmm. who was uh, a collector of songs throughout the Ozarks, grew up in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, she's put that together. She'll be on campus for, um, she lives in the Northeast, uh, for a guest lecture, but I talked to her about her book, and that's going to be on sometime either this week or next week. Tomorrow, as we heard earlier in the show, Jason Burrow, again, speaking of music, mm-hmm. who is an associate professor at the University of Arkansas, but right now is on sabbatical because he is touring with Hamilton as uh, assistant music director. Kind of takes away from the idea of a sabbatical, right? Sabbatical is supposed to be a time of rest? <laughs> well, okay. So academically, sabbatical means, I, th- or at least it's come to mean in modern terms, that you work on something else that's not your Use work. You're, you're putting together a book or right. something like that. So, right. I mean, yeah, sabbatical, I think, used to mean <laughs> that you rested. But you're doing something different. That, I think, would energize you to oh, get absolutely. back. Oh, absolutely. Can you imagine if you were a theater student, you come back and hear someone who has been on tour with Hamilton? Yeah. I mean, arguably the most famous Broadway production of the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Since maybe the producers. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, those conversations and so much more coming up. If you ever miss an edition of Ozarks at Large, there are several ways to listen to it. You can go to ozarksatlarge.com, full shows there. You can listen to the podcast as well. That can be in your feed every day whenever you're able to listen to it. They're waiting for you. And if you're able, you can listen to us tomorrow. We will be back with you at noon and 7 p.m. And you can always ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent edition of our program. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for listening.